You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So if you're one of those rare people who finds a marathon not challenging enough, I'd like to introduce you to the Arctic Ice Ultra Marathon. It's a race about five and a half marathons long, and you've guessed it, it happens in the Arctic Circle. The description says, quote, experiencing daytime temperatures as low as negative 40 degrees, you will battle across snowfields, Arctic tundra, and frozen lakes. This Arctic ultra marathon is both challenging and exposed, putting physical and mental endurance to a painful test. Be ready to take on the conditions that the Arctic Circle can throw at you. As darkness descends, you will feel like the only person on the planet. Does that sound appealing to anyone? Joel Button? I can send you the link. So what does, what does an ultramarathon have to do with Hebrews 10? Well, our text, Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 39 is about endurance. And specifically, it's an encouragement for Christian endurance. And it has endurance athlete undertones. And once, once we take a look at who these Christians were that he's writing to and what they had endured, it'll, it'll make a lot of sense. The picture that comes to mind of where they're at is, is like being about four and a half marathons into this ultra Marathon, and, and not only that, but looking around and getting discouraged, right? Looking at the cost, looking at the toll, and starting to wonder, is following Jesus worth it? This encouragement also comes on the heel of a dreadful warning against abandoning Jesus. This week, Pastor David has written to our church reflecting on the sober warning that comes in the verses before about the result of apostasy. So no matter who you are, you need to hear the warning. Walking away from Jesus, abandoning the Christian faith, will result in facing the full judgment of God, the wrath of God. It says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God And so we don't want to end up there. It's a dreadful warning. Everyone needs to hear it. But here, in verses 32 through 39, the author follows up the warning with an encouragement to these particular Christians for their endurance. And as we look at his encouragement today, my prayer is that we too would be encouraged in our faith, and we would learn to follow his example in encouraging one another. So let me pray We'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. You reveal yourself to us through it. And this morning, wherever we're coming from, we need you. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word and by your spirit to strengthen our faith so we would run with endurance looking to Jesus pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the sermon outline from our text today is a three-part encouragement that fuels enduring faith. 
And those three parts are a past confidence, a better possession, and a promised return. Let's look at verse 32. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So the author's encouragement begins with reminding them of their past confidence in Jesus. If you remember the parable of the sower, a farmer sows a bunch of seeds, and some fall on the road and are immediately snatched up. Some fall on rocky soil, and they don't have the roots to endure the heat of persecution. And some of them fall among thorns and are choked out by the worries of life and deceitfulness of riches. When the author of Hebrews looks back on the past of these Christians, he said, none of those examples describe you. He says, when I look back on your early days of walking with Jesus and what you endured for the sake of Christ, I see real faith. And here, we get a really good glimpse at who these Christians were. And it's pretty incredible. These were not baby Christians. They were veterans. They had lived faithfully through severe persecutions, and the author makes a point of that for their encouragement. He reminds them, when you were first enlightened, right, when they first saw the light of the gospel and trusted in Jesus, their faith was evident through their transformed life. And that transformation was especially clear in their suffering. For one, becoming a Christian made them unpopular. And that's, that's an understatement. The text says they were publicly exposed to reproach. Like, they were openly ridiculed. Whether it was friends or family or roommates or co-workers, the people around them were not happy with them for being Christians. And later, we see that things just continued to escalate and pretty severely because some of these Christians were even arrested and sent to prison for their faith. And because prisons back then were not like our prisons where you get food and blankets and stuff, this this made them completely dependent on their loved ones for survival. And that, and that must have led to a challenge for their community group, right? Like, who's going to sign up for that meal train, right? Like, if, if you go, you've got a target on your back. Everyone knows that you're a Christian. And that means you might get thrown in prison, or, as we see later, your stuff might get taken away. Right? They were losing their possessions. And it's not clear if this was like official confiscation or angry mobs. Either way, the result is the same. Their stuff is gone. Right? Your, your house, your car, your savings, imagine them wiped out. And here the, the author teases out a, a beautiful distinction. There was the direct suffering of individual Christians Right, as a result of their faith. And then there was the voluntary stepping into the suffering of other Christians by the rest of the Christian community. So 
we see that the church acted. They acted with compassion, often taking those risks at great cost to themselves, fueled by their love toward their fellow Christians. These Christians suffered together. So think less like gladiator and more like band of brothers, right? These were Christians enduring together with love and compassion. And how did they fare? Well, it says they endured. And endured here means they persisted in faith. And it was evident by their life of faith, despite suffering. And, and we can see that they not only survived, but they flourished, right? They, they looked at the plundering of their property. They counted the cost and said, joyfully, Jesus is worth it. And when it came to the indirect suffering, the Christians did not abandon them, but stood with them, publicly and boldly united. The church didn't splinter, didn't fall apart, people didn't hide. Their unity was an evident grace of their faith. And I think it's important not to just dismiss these Christians as, as just like a, a different sort unrelatable to us. They weren't superheroes that could tap into superpowers that we don't have access to. They weren't stoics who just weren't affected by suffering. These are real people like you and I. They had families to feed. They had children to look after. They had bills to pay. They worked just as hard for their stuff as you and I do. And they felt the, the sting of rejection like you and I do as well, but they didn't waver. They also didn't become bitter or cynical or angry at God. And here I'd like to just take a moment um, to talk about testimonies. So the, the author of Hebrews in writing to this particular group of Christians looks back on positive examples from their own church to encourage them, to strengthen their faith for endurance. And if you just stop and think about it, just like look around, you are surrounded by hundreds of people who have been transformed by the same power of the gospel that these Christians were. And I'd encourage us to, like the author of Hebrews, to share one another's stories, remind one another of the faith that endured of the power of the gospel in our lives by sharing testimonies. Whether that's dinner conversations, whether that's with your friends or family, whether that's life group or community group, we need to hear of the power of the gospel in one another's lives. And we need examples of faithfulness. We need to hear them. We need to know them, not just biographies, right? I love Christian biographies have been impacted by them a lot, but we need to be reminded from the people in this room. And I'd like to share just a glimpse of my own story. A, a day from back in college, I had grown up in a Christian home. I had heard the gospel often, made early professions of faith, but in college, I just remember being stuck. Like I was surrounded by a cloud of doubt and skepticism that I could not break out of for years. 
I doubted everything about God. I doubted his goodness, and I even doubted his existence. And one day, I was sitting in the college hallway reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, a collection of true stories of Christians from the early church. And I got to one story of Denisa, who the author says was a young woman of only 16 years old. Denisa was standing in a crowd and witnessed a man renouncing his faith under torture. And instead of hiding or blending in, Denisa spoke up and publicly confronted this man. She said, Oh, unhappy wretch, why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? And so 16-year-old Denisa, having avowed herself to be a Christian, was beheaded soon after. So both Denisa's rebuke and the realness of her faith stirred my heart deeply that day. And I remember pleading with God, saying, God, I want that kind of faith. Why don't I have what she has? Why is my heart so hard? Would you remove the doubt? Would you give me faith like hers? In that moment, he did. In that moment, Jesus was more real to me than any of the students walking past me in the hallway. I, to this day, will not forget the peace and the joy and the love that filled my heart. And I look back to that day often for my encouragement. And that's just one day from one life. And we have hundreds of testimonies of God's powerful working in the lives of the Christians around us. And so that's what the author is doing here. He's reminding them of their past confidence. And a note on confidence, right? Confidence can be a confusing word, and faith and confidence often used synonymously like it is here. So it's important to realize that the foundation of our faith is not how confident we are, right? Christian faith is always personal, but it's not subjective. It's like you know, if you're doing this Arctic Ice Ultra Marathon and you got to run across a frozen lake. You don't step onto a frozen lake because you're just confident, right? You step on the lake because the ice is solid enough to hold your weight, right? If, if the ice can't hold you, it doesn't matter how confident you are, you're going to fall through. And that's why Paul says... If Christ isn't raised from the death, from, from the dead, our faith is useless. We're still in our sins. Our faith, right, our confidence stands or falls on the object that it rests on. And that's the person and work of Jesus on our behalf. That's why we sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand. Right? He is the confidence. He is the root of our faith. And so, at the same time, that objective confidence has to become our own. Like, faith is personal. And that's why the author speaks in our text of your confidence, 
right? Real Christian faith is taken to heart and lived out. So it's not standing on the shore thinking about how solid that ice is. It's putting your weight on it and running. And so the secret to their enduring faith was not how confident they were. It was the substance, right? It was the foundation that their confidence rested on. And that is what the author focuses in on, on the second part of his encouragement. So the second part of his encouragement, he reminds them that their confidence was rooted in a better possession. Verse 34, you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So after reminding them of their past faith, he then reflects on the substance of that faith. And the way he does that is by intentionally lingering on the topic or the theme of possessions, right? He, he reminds them that the reason they joyfully accepted the plundering of their possessions is because they had a better possession, right? Plundering of plural possessions, they had a better singular possession. And what they had in Christ was infinitely more valuable than what they were giving up. Like, the revealing word is joyfully. Their own joy testified to the reality that Jesus was more valuable to them than their stuff. He was more valuable than their possessions. He was more valuable to them than money. And I think it's important to, to talk about money, right? Jesus talks about money a lot because our money habits both reveal and they shape what we value. Matthew 6 says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, where your money is, there your heart will be also. There's a a reinforcing cycle. The more we value something, the more we invest our money into it. And the more we get invested into it, the more our heart treasures it, the more our heart values it. And so, Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, and your heart will follow, right? Invest your money where you want your heart to be. So for example, do you want your heart to be excited about God's work in global missions? Jesus says, easy application. Invest in global missions, right? Where you put your money, your heart will go. Or do you want your heart to more fully embrace God's work in the local mission of your church? Easy application. Put your treasures there, right? We, we don't want to wait until our possessions are threatened to discover what our heart truly values. And so there's a, there's a book that I found very helpful on, on money called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, and, and I'd highly recommend it. And for these Christians, their heart, what their heart valued the most was Jesus. Like he was the better possession. And these Christians remind me of the parable of the man 
who found a treasure in a field. Like nobody, nobody thinks about that story and feels bad for the guy. Like, man, that, that poor guy who found the treasure in the field, he had to give up everything. No. He discovered a better treasure, right? It was, it was clear in his joy. He found a deeper joy, a better treasure. And the book of Hebrews has been arguing that Jesus is better, like, all along. Right? Piling up the arguments, better than angels, better than Moses, better than old covenant s- sacrifices. And here, I think, finally, the most relatable comparison for modern Christians, better than your possessions. Jesus is better than your possessions. People often ask, what would you do if you won the lottery? Right? Ever been asked that question? It's like, would you buy a really nice house on the beach? Would you travel the world with your family? Would you just be glad to not have to worry about bills anymore? Whatever your answer is to that question, Jesus is better than that. God made you to be satisfied in him for eternity. Nothing else will satisfy. Everything else will either disappoint you or it won't last. Jesus is the deepest and only lasting treasure in the universe. And when we trust in him, he becomes our greatest possession. When we believe in Jesus, we receive him. Not only the complete forgiveness of our sins, but an eternity of life with him, right? Living face to face in the presence and enjoyment of Jesus. The Bible says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is no greater joy than the joy promised to those who trust in Jesus. And there's a link here in our text, if you pay attention, to between the present and the future, right? It says, you had a better possession, right? There's something that they have in the present that leads to a future reward, right? There's a promise and a future reward linked to their present possession. And that future fulfillment is is what leads our author to, to go into the third and final part of his encouragement. So in the third part of his encouragement, he invites them to look to the returning Jesus. And and he does this by quoting Habakkuk chapter 2. So I'll read that from verse 37. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So for some context... Habakkuk was an Old Testament prophet who was looking around at the injustice and the suffering in Israel and and brings a complaint to God. He's wondering, why is there so much wickedness? And why does it seem to go unchallenged, right? Why is it undealt with, God? Does God see? Does God care? How long will God let this go on? And God answers him by saying, well, I do see, and I do care, and I'm doing something about it. For one, 
I'm sending the, I'm sending the Chaldeans. Right? They're coming to invade as a judgment on Israel for their wickedness. And Habakkuk is not satisfied with that answer. Right? He says, how is that any better? The Chaldeans are, are way worse than we are. Right? They're more wicked. What's the big picture? Right? What is God's game plan? When is God going to fulfill his promises? Where's the definitive judgment and the final resolution? And he, Habakkuk kind of retreats to a tower and says, God, I'm, I'm watching and I'm waiting. What are you going to do? And, and God says, Habakkuk, the things I promised will come to pass. You can write them down. Their fulfillment is coming. It won't be according to your timeline, but it will be according to God's perfect timing. And as for you, Habakkuk, and this is the famous line, right? The righteous shall live by faith. Or if you might be familiar with the King James Version, the just shall live by faith. And we know that Paul quotes Habakkuk 2 in Romans chapter 1 to show the foundational link between our justification and faith, right? So the just shall live by faith. We are justified, counted righteous, not by our works, not by anything we do or deserve, but only by trusting in Jesus. He's the substance, right? He's the substance of our confidence, the perfect and complete work of Jesus on the cross. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness. And the the author of Hebrews has been clear on that foundation throughout the whole book. Jesus is the perfect high priest. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He is the one who wipes away all of our sins once and for all. He's the one who gives us eternal presence and access into the presence of the Holy God. And yet, here, when author of Hebrew looks at Habakkuk 2, he highlights an application. And he does this by, by finding the link between faith and live. So, so if, if Romans is showing the, the link between just and faith, he's showing the link between faith and live. So for people like Habakkuk who are living between God's promise and its ultimate fulfillment, what do you do? How do you endure? And, and the author of Hebrews says, they live by faith. Faith is not only a moment in the past where you trusted in Jesus, it's a life of leaning in and drawing near. We don't shrink back, we continue, right? We keep looking to Jesus by faith until he returns. And the application here, drawn from Habakkuk 2, is let's Live by faith, with our eyes fixed on Jesus as we wait for the final return, final fulfillment at Christ's return. Jesus is coming back. God gave us his word, and with Christ's return will come the final fulfillment of all God's promises. Our text says, the coming one is coming and will not delay. Like, that's as emphatic as you can get through repetition. Jesus is coming. God's plan was in action when Habakkuk talked to him, and it's that much closer today. Jesus was coming when you first became a Christian, and he's that much 
closer today. So don't give up. Right? That's, that's, that's the main exhortation here is don't throw away your confidence. Don't give up. Jesus is so close. He's closer than you were back then when you first believed. Don't walk away now. As Hebrews 12 says, let us run with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And the author concludes confidently in verse 29. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Another translation says, we're of those who have faith for the safekeeping of the soul. Like our endurance, our safekeeping is tied to the reality that our faith rests in Jesus. It's who we are. It's our identity. There's no alternatives to go back to. Right? Walking away from Jesus, as we've seen, is a dead-end road that leads to destruction. That's not us. And I love that the, the author here at the end speaks both in the present tense and includes himself. So, we are, author included, those who have faith right now. The most important question for everyone in this room is, are you believing in Jesus? And if you are, keep believing. Don't look away. Keep your eyes fixed on the returning Jesus to remind you of the fulfillment of all God's promises. It's coming. So, as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and wait for his return, is closer every day than the day before, that brings us to the table. Every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. Jesus is closer this Sunday than he was last Sunday. 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us that when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Like every Sunday when we reach out to take the bread and the cup, we remind ourselves and one another that Jesus is sufficient. He is our greatest possession and he's coming back for the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And so, if you are today trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're waiting for him to return, I invite you to take communion with us this morning. If that's not you, I I just ask that you would let the elements pass, but don't let the moment pass. Take Jesus. Put your trust in him. So pastors will come and distribute the bread first, hold on to it, and we'll eat it together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.